Hi, everybody. I'm Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the nextlevel.com podcast. We are always so lucky to have great guests on our show, and today is absolutely no exception. Joining us from five hours ahead in Scotland is Brian Inkster. Brian, thanks very much for coming today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Brian, we've known each other virtually for a long time. You do a lot of interesting things. You are the founder of Inksters, which is an award-winning Scottish law firm. Um, but before we start anything, you have to tell North American listeners particularly what crofting law is, because if we don't get to it right now, I don't want to forget about it. Um, crofting law, um, I suppose for the uninitiated, um, think of a small holding or a small agricultural unit in um, Scotland, a croft has been described as a small area of land surrounded by a sea of legislation. Nice. <laughs> and uh, at, really the laws go back to 1886 uh, and prior to the laws being enacted then, it was all linked to the clearances where uh, landlords were clearing tenants off their land. And indeed a lot of uh, Scottish people ended up in Canada and the States and other parts of the world as a result of the clearances because they were being cleared off their lands. And crofting law came into being in order to give them security of tenure so that they uh, were able to stay and work on their lands and not be evicted from it by the landlords. Very, very interesting. Um, one thing else I want to say about you before we get started is we have a good mutual friend, Mitch Kowalski from Toronto. And you noted on your website that in his book, The Great Legal Reformation, Notes from the Field, he gives a really good description about you. And having seen you, I think it's fairly accurate. So I'm going to read it to our, our listeners. Brian Inkster reminds me of what Elvis Costello would look like if he'd become a lawyer. Inkster has an understated new way of coolness about him that fits nicely with his role as a legal entrepreneur. And he does kind of look like Elvis Costello in his prime, kind of. And I will give our mutual friend Mitch that. So that helps frame today's conversation. I am going to throw out, and but everybody knows we don't rehearse these, so it's just as it comes. I'm going to throw out a controversial thesis to you, Brian. And I'd like us to unpack this over our half hour together. Here's my thesis. Atrium and Clubhouse together reveal an almost Ides of March level blind spot among legal innovators. <laughs> That's a pretty heavy sentence to digest, no? <laughs> uh, I've not thought about the combination of Atrium and Clubhouse, so you've kind of taken me by surprise there. It's not something I've thought as, as a combination. <laughs> No, that's, believe me, I put them together probably as an artificial combination, like I make most of my sandwiches. But one thing for the readers who are uninitiated is Brian does a blog called The Time Blog, B-L-A-W-G, and it is an award-winning blog, and it's really excellent. And what I've always loved about it, I love two things about it. First of all, I love the fact that you quote me, so I'd like to publicly thank you for that. When I say my crazy things in the social sphere... I often get a mention and I do notice it and I do greatly appreciate it. So thank you for that. But I also love the fact that you get into a lot of depth in your pieces. Mm -hmm. So for those who are following both things or who may be brand new to both things, you know, Atrium is a great example. And let's start there of a legal startup that got so much global attention. It got global attention from lawyers and legal innovators and venture capitalists. It also raised a lot of money. 
And then there were a lot of people, and I think you and I were in that much smaller group that were kind of shaking our heads, maybe feeling we didn't quite understand why. Is that an accurate description of maybe our impressions of Atrium? I think so, yeah. I mean, at, at the beginning when it was first launched, it was sort of, you know, why and what, what's this about? And, uh, you know, it came to pass that those questions still existed after it departed. You know? That's a very, very good point. And you wrote an excellent piece called Atrium's Mistake from the Horse's Mouth, an analysis, which also has one of the most wonderful pictures I've seen of the founder, Justin Can from his Reddit AMA, which was actually this year. It was in, I think, the 5th of January. Mm -hmm. um, and you had written in the past about Atrium's demise. And basically, they raised $75 million of venture funding. And they burned through most or all of it, as far as we know. Uh, before they closed down. Uh, they raised 75 million, they shut down 10 months ago, and that's where we are today. So what lessons do you think the legal industry should and can take from something like Atrium? I mean, I've got a few, I'm very interested to hear yours. I, mean, I think the main point that I expressed in the blog, and it's still the point that I think um, is the most important is for a law firm to effectively redesign the wheel by creating legal tech that already exists and thinking they're doing something new and you know for one law firm to spend millions and millions of pound on bespoke software you know if they not thought about the fact that other law firms may have seen a need for similar sort of software and that there may be companies out out there that actually manufacture and sell that software uh, and, you know, especially today in the world of cloud computing, uh, you know, you can get legal practice management software where you're paying a license fee, you know, probably no more than $500 uh, a month um, per user. Why would you spend millions and millions of pounds creating some bespoke software that you're going to have to maintain, keep up? And you know, how are you ever going to recover the actual cost spent from fees charged to clients? It just, you know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Anybody doing a, a little bit of arithmetic on the uh, back of a cigarette packet could work out quite quickly that economies of that just does not work. Well, I think the answer to the question, which really isn't really a rhetorical one, one, is because between buy, build, and bricolage, you're only going to be able to raise money for build. Even if, as you say, buying things that are already out there, buying software licenses, or you know, using bricolage, <laughs> creating kind of a hybrid of some things that you can do and some things that are out there, aren't going to get you $70 million of venture money. No, not at all. Um, but... You know, I don't think you can look at law firms in that sort of way, you know, and you know, it is a difficulty because where law firms, obviously, Atrium is a US-based uh, entity and um, law firms are heavily regulated in the US as they are in Canada and as they are in Scotland, less so in England. Um, but because of the regulation that surrounds it, the ability to get outside investment is limited. And, you know, that's a problem I have in Scotland. I can't suddenly go out and, and get outside investment to try and, uh, you know, make my law firm bigger and better overnight by doing things through an injection of cash. Um, but even if I could, the last thing I do would, uh, would be to go and build technology, you know, 
Um, there'd be other things that you could spend the money on to uh, improve and build your law firm. Um, but I, I suppose that's why Atrium did the build because they had to get money from somewhere. And as you say, they had uh, effectively two parts to their business. They had the traditional law firm, which was trying to be non-traditional in some sort of way. And they had the technology company and the technology company was getting the investment to build the technology. How the internal uh, accountancy arrangements went on between those entities, who knows? But I'm sure some of that money had to be siphoned into supporting the law firm as well. Um, but, you know, I think you need to realise what is a law firm. And if it can't get outside investment, why create a tech company to create something that the law firm doesn't actually need. Exactly right. Um, one answer to that, which may be a little bit of a cynical answer, is the fact that people continue to talk about Atrium today. That's at the expense of investors losing up to 75 million US dollars. We don't know how much of that money was spent. I would imagine that the vast, vast majority of it was spent and not returned to investors. But it became a legal tech meme and mm -hmm. it became a legal tech story that history is at least going to look back on, whether it looks back upon it favorably or not. And I expect that it won't. And you expect the same thing, I believe. It is a story. Now, for those who also don't know, the, you know not everybody can go out and raise $70 million for a legal tech startup, particularly one with a fairly suspicious business model. But this founder was able to because he had exited his company beforehand for close to a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly the financial explanation of how somebody who has no background in legal innovation, no background in the law, was able to go out and raise a lot of money for a startup. Uh, is there a cautionary tale there? Uh, well, there's a cautionary tale both for somebody starting up a a law firm, a bleak tech company, and also a cautionary tale for the investors who are going to put money you know, into that. Uh, I mean, you'd think the investors just wouldn't go on the fact, well, he's done it before, so he can do it again without actually doing some, um, you know, investigation into what the business model was and what it's likely to achieve or not, and to get some, you know, input from people who know the industry and can tell them, you know, um, maybe to avoid that particular investment. Um, so, you know, there must be a cautionary tale there uh, on both sides, but it doesn't seem to stop them. <laughs> you know, we'll probably see the same thing happening again a year or two down the line. I always referred to Atrium from the beginning as the Juicero of law. If we remember Juicero, it was that device that was supposed to be a very high-end juicer. And I don't remember the exact amount they raised, but it was over $500 million, I believe. And the end of this joke is that it turned out that you could juice the juice packets better with your hand mm -hmm. than with the juicer that they'd raised over $500 million for, which leads me to, I think, was your kind of most salient point of the atrium piece, which is when you say that there's no skipping the R&D phase of a company, because if you try to skip this, you miss the part where you have to develop something differentiated. And you mm -hmm. can't solve that with money, as you've said. No, I mean... <laughs> Throwing money at it's not going to to solve the problem, is it? Evidently not. <laughs> and, and one, one would hope that it might, but it didn't. Another thing is that they hadn't learned from the mistakes 
by others because we'd seen this already play out, although uh, on a smaller scale and less money being spent with um, Clearspire, uh, who did basically exactly the same thing, but on a smaller scale. Um, and again, that was a, a company, a law firm that was set up uh, with a tech wing and made its own bespoke software um, and, you know, ended up running out of money. And again, which should have been a lesson that people should have picked on. I think that entrepreneurs generally aren't great historians. It's not mm -hmm. that we don't understand history. It's just that we don't understand what history is there for. Well, you can see that happening with legal tech startups all the time, because when you look at a lot of these new legal tech startups, a lot of them are going into document automation and things that have been around for 30 odd years as though lawyers aren't aware of these things and aren't actually using them. And, and you know, there's a plethora of legal tech startups that are doing things that already exist. They're nothing new. And again, for those you know who are just getting into the legal innovation scene, what Brian's talking about isn't stuff from five years ago. If you look at legal tech, there's one legal tech accelerator that's starting a batch of companies this month. Those companies are 90% of them doing things like you said that have already been done. That doesn't mean that maybe they don't find a way to do it better. But yep. is that really where we are with legal innovation in 2021? Maybe it is. I hope we weren't be, but I guess we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it's that lack of seemingly knowledge about what lawyers are already doing and what they've done in the past. And again, there's very little research seems to go into it by the founders of these companies. Um, you know, if they spend a little bit of time chatting to a lawyer or in a legal office, they might realize how lawyers actually operated and what they actually need to do to, to do their job, you know. You know, and that's one of the things that that concerns me. So before we go to talk about Clubhouse, what really concerns me is when you think about legal innovation, legal technology, law tech in general, the amount of money that get, gets wasted, that gets wasted on conferences, gets wasted on travel, on startups that have no reason to exist. And I remember about four years ago when I was living in Berlin, we had an online conversation once where I said, so much of what seems to be said and done is done for a group of like 50 legal innovation elites. So maybe the number now is 75 or maybe it's 30, depends on which way you look at it. But that seems like a very odd way to run an industry, does it not? Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a bubble of people who are chatting about legal tech and actually, without being unkind, uh, a lot of them are actually aren't at the coal phase using legal tech. That's a great point. And a lot of those people who are not at the coal phase using legal tech aren't happy with you about all this clubhouse stuff that's gone down. Is that, is that, I think that's fairly good enough to say because I've certainly heard it on my end. Um, I assume you've had some very interesting uh, feedback and let's try, to, let's try to frame this so for people who don't know. So Brian, who, as I said, again, um, you know, is a voice that a lot of people follow and a lot of people read and for good reason, because I honestly think that, you know, aside from being a fan, I think the way you say things and what you say is really thought provoking. And you can tell it's not salesy. You can tell people aren't giving you, you know, a few hundred bucks to say this. And that does happen in the legal technology industry. So I want to commend you for that. 
But where we are with Clubhouse is super interesting because it seemed out of nowhere, at least from my perspective, that all of these people in legal tech and innovation started gathering on Clubhouse. Hmm. Is that the way you perceive it as well, that it just basically popped up out of nothing? Well, it did for me. I didn't even heard of it. And then suddenly, and it seemed to happen kind of early January, I would say. I mean, maybe I'd heard murmurings about it before that, but I think it really, certainly in legal, I would say it was uh, sometime during January where it seemed to blossom and everybody was speaking about it. Uh, certainly on Twitter, uh, I was seeing people uh, mention it there and also on LinkedIn and uh People were saying it was the next big thing and lawyers had to get, get on there before they were too late. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and a lot of that was coming from legal marketers yes. and legal technology gurus, I suppose, people who um, write and speak about legal technology. But um, to me, it was sort of, you know, hold on a minute, what is this? And it was kind of, is it the the... the next new shiny toy and is it actually any use for for lawyers or not and the more i delved into it although it was the early days the more i saw that there were problems uh, surrounding inclusivity and um especially privacy that i would have thought any lawyer would have uh, had concerns about and would have thought twice before they just leaped in there you know Oh, which makes perfect sense. And again, you know, there's nothing wrong with a bright, shiny toy, as long as it's not a toy that the manufacturer has to recall because it injures kids. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Clubhouse is. So tell us what you discovered as you kind of went through your, your Clubhouse process of investigating what it was. I mean, how essentially does the Clubhouse technology work that all of these lawyers have embraced as the next coming of communication? Well, maybe we should just sort of briefly, maybe all your listeners will know what Clubhouse is by now, but um, we, should maybe, we should maybe briefly explain what Clubhouse actually is, just in case anybody's listening that doesn't understand what Clubhouse is. But it's an, it's an audio-only um, social media platform. So uh, someone can create a room, uh, and in the same way as me and you are chatting here on what will become a podcast, um, it can be a live experience with me and you in a room chatting to one another, but then maybe inviting other people into the room to, to chat uh, in a live basis. Um, but that chat um, will not be recorded, um, or if it is recorded, that's against the, the terms of uh, Clubhouse's policy, although they do actually record themselves each room for the purposes of if there was any issues or problems, but they claim that they delete those recordings um, if nothing's been reported to them after the event. Um, but you, so you've got a live experience of people chatting in a room about, you know, whatever they choose to, whatever topic they choose to speak about. And so in January, I was seeing lawyers creating rooms about why lawyers should be on Clubhouse um, and things <laughs> nice. like that. Yeah. yeah. So they need to you know, join Clubhouse and then go into this room and listen to a lawyer telling you why you should be there, um, which seemed a little bit strange. But also, you know, if, at launch point, it was just uh, for iPhones only. So if you're an Android user, you're immediately excluded. So any of these rooms that were being set up to discuss legal technology issues or whatever, 
um, were excluding any lawyers who were Android users. I don't know what the percentage uh, in legal circles are between people on Android compared with iPhone, but overall in the world, uh, it is somewhere around 70 odd percent uh, of users are Android compared with iPhone. So immediately you have a situation where you're excluding a vast number of people who can't access it because they um, don't have an iPhone. Um, I, so I, I would jump in and add, by the way, Brian, is from my experience, having lived in so many places recently in Europe, I know no lawyers in Europe who are in the legal innovation sphere personally who have iPhones. And I don't know any lawyers in North America who are not using iPhones, which again, just creates a larger divide, which is the last thing that legal innovation needs. Exactly. I, I, mean, I didn't know there was that difference um, between you know, North America and, and Europe, but um, you know, immediately, as you say, that creates a divide. So that's a problem for somebody suddenly creating an event there. Um, but then it's an invite only platform. So unless you're invited onto it, you can't just immediately join up. Um, unlike Twitter, say you can't just join Twitter and be there and, uh, and start following people and seeing what's going on. You need to wait until somebody invites you. And that's where you know, when I investigated it and did a bit of research, um, I discovered that there were issues surrounding that. Uh, and actually at the time in January, when I was researching it and when I wrote the blog post about the, the 12 reasons why lawyers should maybe avoid um, Clubhouse, uh, that since then, there's been a lot more written uh, and I'm a lot more aware of actually the privacy issues probably being worse than I imagined at the time. But since um, the time you wrote this, more and more people are going to Clubhouse for legal innovation. Yeah, and they're still carrying on doing it regardless of that, which again amazes me, that regardless of there actually being more information out there about the issues concerning privacy, it doesn't seem to be stopping solicitors joining it. Um, you know, the, 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 the Law Society of Scotland in last month in the journal that they publish had it down as being tech of the month with no warnings, uh, nothing to suggest any problems or issues with it. Um, but uh, they contacted me for this month's issue because they said they'd heard that I had views on it and did I want to express them. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, they said they hadn't, they didn't know what they were. They just had heard from someone that I had views on it. So um, I did a short piece for them for this month's journal, uh, just maybe highlighting to lawyers that there may be privacy issues around it that they might want to uh, take into consideration before they, they jump in there. But the um, issue with the invites is that if you want an invite, you have to get it from someone who's been given the invites. People get invites as a result of joining Clubhouse and um, participating in rooms and so on. I think the more active you are on it, the more invites Clubhouse gives you that you can then give out to other people. Sure. Uh, and I suppose by giving out those invites to other people, you're looking as though you're popular because you've got the invites to give out and people will be thanking you for giving them the invites and so on. Um, but the, the issue is when you actually hand out an invite, you need the other person, the person you're inviting, you need their mobile phone number 
And when you give out the invite, you have to share your whole contact list, not just that person's number with Clubhouse. And as a result of that, Clubhouse gathers all the data that's on your mobile phone. Uh, and they create shadow profiles of people who are on your phone who haven't already joined Clubhouse. People who have club joined uh, join Clubhouse, they can tie you up with them because they know that they're on Clubhouse and so are you. Um, but you get a very strange situation, um, which a lot of people have alluded to who have concerns about it, which is suppose neither me nor you were on Clubhouse. Um, I had your mobile phone number in my mobile phone, but you didn't have my number. You did maybe historically, but you had, there were good reasons for why you didn't want to be in contact with me anymore. So you had deleted the phone number from uh, my mobile phone. You joined Clubhouse. Um, then at some point, I decided to join Clubhouse. Clubhouse knows your phone number. As soon as I join, they see that I know you because I've got your number in my mobile phone and Clubhouse now have that detail, the, uh, the detail of that phone number. And they immediately try to connect us up. So if I just joined Clubhouse, they might actually notify you and suggest that you, that I'm just new to Clubhouse and that you might want to walk me through a room. Unbelievable. And as you pointed out, by the way, in that article from zerforschung.org, this happens every single time you mm -hmm. open the tab. It's not just like it happens once. But Clubhouse can essentially create a complete history of your contacts. Yeah. And you know, there could be situations where people have historically been uh, fallen out for certain reasons, maybe ex-partners, maybe they've been in an abusive situation, um, you know, a whole load of potential things that that, that uh, could be reasons why you never want to see that person again. Yeah, and yeah. suddenly Clubhouse is trying to connect the two of you up. Great at all. Um, mm -hmm. So how's this going to evolve in your mind? Because like I've said, since this piece came out, and I'm very surprised. I'm surprised that since this piece came out, it didn't give more legal influencers pause to say, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe this isn't the greatest thing in the world. Because the points that you make here are, are dispassionate, very intelligently put. And I would hate to imagine that there are lawyers who could read something like this and say, I'm heading to Clubhouse anyway, but they are. But there, you know, there again, and I mentioned it in the post, there was a legal influencer who said they wouldn't be reading my post because <laughs> I wasn't on Clubhouse. So how could I possibly comment on it? Which is just absolutely, the logic is absolutely wonderful. And I think that that logic is something that I've seen before in person at like the ABA tech show. So I think it's something that's never gonna go away from the legal space. That's, that's mm -hmm. quite intriguing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so when you're coming up against that, it's a sort of, you know, uh, how can you possibly comment because you've never actually used it? Um, you know, and, and that's the sort of barriers you're getting set up. People are just going to ignore what I say because they've already made a decision that Clubhouse is for them uh, and it's a wonderful place to be. And um, whatever I might be saying is a nonsense. 
So, yeah, but one of the things about Clubhouse, and I think this was mentioned in your piece, is that even the name Clubhouse is pretty terrible. So legal innovation, in my mind, can go in one of two directions. I know this is like, it can go a lot more directions, but this is what I see. It can either become more inclusive and more focused on solving things like access to justice, or it can be more of a kid's table um, using Silicon Valley like bro terms. And that's exactly what was pointed out in your piece uh, is happening with Clubhouse. Let's go hang out at the legal Clubhouse with all of the other innovators. But again, only if they have an iPhone and only if they're willing to go into what is clearly a vexatious terms of service. Let's go play with them there. Is that really the direction that legal, legal innovation is going to head over the next few years? I hope not. What do you think? I hope not too, but again, it's a kind of bubble and it's maybe a bubble within a bubble. Uh, I think somebody said that, you know, that it's, uh, it's just created another bubble for, for the bubble to, um, you know, communicate within. And, you know, to some extent, if that's what they want to do, you know, let them do it. But I would have thought that if you were looking at being innovative and doing things in legal, a, you would need to be all inclusive and you would need to be giving anybody a, an opportunity to join in. Uh, and clearly Clubhouse is not the platform for that. And, you know, we were already, especially since lockdown, um, we were already suddenly thrust into using other types of technology that would allow us to communicate freely with one another um, at a distance and you know lawyers were thrown into using zoom in a way that they'd never done before and you know any legal innovator wanting to create an event to have discussions about a particular topic could have been doing that on zoom and sure. anybody could have been joining it they wouldn't need an iphone or not people were saying that people you know people were fed up with video chats well you know they can switch their videos off if they so desire, they don't want to look at one another. And, you know, what you would create is not really anything that different from what's going on in Clubhouse. But it would, but it would be fully accessible, you know? Totally agree. Um, yeah, it just, it, it, it really boggles the mind. Uh, where we are today in 2021. And the other thing, by the way, is whatever, we all have mobile phones, whether it's Android or Apple, and we all have the kind of plans where to get on something like your phone and do a group call and actually connect with people just over the telephone, that wouldn't mm. be the end of the world either. No, exactly. And you could do that if you, if you so desired. Uh, I mean, I saw a comment just the other day that uh, there is from somebody who was an early adopter of Clubhouse saying that there's now so many clubs that it's just become a noise and, uh, you know, was basically saying there's too much going on there and, you know, where do you go and what do you do? Um, so already people are seeing problems with it, you know, um, because there's too much, too much being organised and too much going on and, you know, where do you start and where do you stop? But, you know, I think a big thing for lawyers is that do you actually have the time to be doing this? You know, to, to just go into a room where people are chatting, what are they chatting about? Is it going to be relevant to you? Is it going to give you any benefits? Um, you know, I've seen people saying you need to spend a lot of time in there just to get a few golden nuggets. Um, you know, 
are you going to spend several hours in the hope of getting a couple of little nuggets out of it uh, when you could be doing other things? Uh, and lawyers are very busy people. You know, they're, they're very busy just doing their day job. Can they really afford the time to spend um, you know, an hour every other day, say, even uh, spending time in clubhouse rooms? I doubt it. I think big secrets to legal innovation. A lot of people in the legal innovation community who are not practicing lawyers aren't very busy. That's no. one of the big secrets. They can afford to spend as much time in clubhouse as they want. I've said this for years from my first days in the legal innovation space, and this is my feeling on it. It's very easy to put on the hat and call yourself a legal innovator when somebody's paying you a salary. But when they're not, and you have to make the kind of decisions that you just talked about a second ago, is this really the best use of my time? You're probably not going to spend a lot of time places like Clubhouse, where the cost-benefit analysis may not work out as well as you think it would. No, exactly. And, you know, and it's, even if you were organizing it and doing organizing a room, it's off the moment because it's lost after that that moment. You know, unlike this podcast that me and you are doing at the moment, anybody can listen to this anytime that suits them. Yep. Wherever they are, um, and and you know they can choose to listen to this or not. They're not having to go into a room, listen to something that is then gone and they can never listen to again or to host something that is gone and will never happen again, which is, you know, not a very good use of marketing time, I don't think, because I think, you know, if you are doing something for marketing purposes as a lawyer, you want to be able to reuse and repurpose that and not lose it uh, and not be a one-off event. This, of course, makes perfect sense to me. No doubt about it. Brian, it's amazing. One of the things that amazes this podcast is how quickly a half hour goes. So I think that we have at least partially proven the thesis that if you look at HM and Clubhouse together, it maybe does show a <laughs> blind spot that legal innovation as a thing uh, didn't know they had. Brian, I'd love to have you on the podcast again anytime. Thank you so much for joining today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care, Brian. Talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers. Bye.